This morning, the scripture is from Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is not a spelling bee. It's not the name of our sermon. It just happens to be one of the great things that happens when you're at a school. Last week was the geography bee, I think, so we'll see what next week brings. Um, We're really grateful that you have joined us this morning. I'm Dave Hahn, and I am privileged to be able to open uh, God's Word with you this morning. So I don't think that it is a secret that we are growing more impatient as a society, and I blame technology for most of that. See, I, I grew up in a different time. Many of us grew up in a different time when you had to leave your house and drive all across town to find the best price on an item that you were looking to purchase. When the standard delivery time was six to eight weeks, and by the time that thing showed up, you forgot you had even ordered it. Six to eight weeks. We would not put up with that schedule in today's day and age. But today things are different. Now, you can download a book or a song in 30 seconds. Amazon offers same-day shipping. And I love Amazon Prime. Being able to get whatever I want at the lowest cost within a day and never having to even leave my house. Yes and amen. And with each passing day, we draw ever closer to having one-hour shipping, having that just be standard, where the skies will be filled with drones that land on your porch and drop off 24 packs of toilet paper, bricks of batteries, and a Marvel movie. The cry of our culture, my friends, is we want what we want, and we want it now. But we don't feel that same sense of urgency or impatience with everything in life, do we? When it comes to our own physical, emotional, or spiritual well-being, we are generally very glad to take our time. It's only our lives that are are at stake. I'm sure that pain will go away, we think. It's just eternity. I've got plenty of time to figure out this God thing. I think getting us to procrastinate about the things that matter most, loving God, loving others, and taking care of what he has given us is one of Satan's greatest tricks. He fills our lives with all kinds of distractions and busyness. He's waving all sorts of shiny objects in front of us to keep our eyes off of what is actually best for us. And he's filling our hearts with fear. 
regarding the things that God wants to rule and reign over on our behalf. So what makes the first chapter of Mark so interesting is that the messages and ministries of both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, there is a true and very real sense of urgency. They are both after the attention of their hearers saying, this news cannot wait. You need to hear this. Nothing matters more. So over the past two weeks, in the first 13 verses of Mark, we've looked at the very beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. And we were introduced to John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness, the Bible says. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Not beginning with or ending with, if you've got time. But John was not the first to prepare the way. He wasn't the first to predict Jesus' coming. God's chosen Savior had been foretold from the very beginning, as early as the third chapter of Genesis. And every book in the Bible and every prophet God had sent told us who Jesus would be, when Jesus would come, where Jesus would be born, and what Jesus would do. And while he was not the first, John would be the last of those to prepare the way for him because the way Jesus himself had come and was now living among mankind. And Jesus, being fully man and fully God, began his ministry by identifying with mankind. First, in that he was baptized by John. Second, in that he went into the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted in every way, just as we are. Whatever it is that we have been tempted with, he was tempted with it too. And Jesus Christ, my friends, we have one who was baptized but did not need to repent. In Jesus Christ, we have one who was tempted but did not sin. Which leads us to today's passages in verses 14 through 20. So in the front half, verse 14, we learn that John the Baptist was arrested. We don't learn why John was arrested in these verses, but we do learn how and why in chapter 6 of Mark, which we will get to. And we also learn about that in chapter 14 of Matthew. Now, I am not going to jump ahead and ruin the sermon that will come out of Mark 6. So we'll just say this about John's arrest. John's heart all along, was to humble himself and make much of Jesus Christ. Listen to John's words in verse 7 of this same chapter. He says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, John's followers got concerned that Jesus was getting more attention than he was. And John replied to his followers, listen to these words, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's 
voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. You see, John's work as one sent before Jesus and a friend of the bridegroom was nearing its end. That's what his arrest and ultimately John's death was about. But even so, his joy, he said, was complete because the one whose way he had prepared had come. And John's desire was that Jesus would be exalted and glorified instead of him. No matter what that meant for him personally. So friends, is it your desire, is it my desire, that Christ increase while we decrease? What motivates us to do what we do for God? Does it flow out of love and obedience for him? Or is it to put God into our debt? To pay him back somehow? Maybe it's to gain a better position. To help get us noticed. Or to make us feel better about ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we must understand and live in the good of this truth, my friends. God's glory is the reason for our existence. His increase is why we live. That we are already, already perfectly loved, accepted, noticed, and exalted by God himself. What do those things coming from man mean compared to God giving them to us perfectly? And like John, all of that is because, not because of what we have done, but because what God has done in us through his son. John was called the greatest of those who would be born of men, and it wasn't because of him. It was because of who God said that he was and the calling that he gave him. That is the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim, that we are already loved, already exalted, already noticed because of what Jesus has done. And Jesus began proclaiming that gospel in Galilee, where he was from and where he spent most of his time. So listen again to Jesus' words in verse 15 as Dan read them to us. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So let's look at just that one verse in its three parts. First, the time is fulfilled. There are two Greek words for time. One of those words means chronological time. For example, it's 1031 on January 19th, 2020. The other Greek word means an opportune or decisive time. For example, it has been nine years since our last one, Aaron Rodgers is 36 years old. It is time for us to win another Super Bowl. And it's the second meaning of time that Jesus uses here. Jesus is saying the opportunity to enter into and identify with the promised, long-awaited kingdom of God is now. Take advantage. You see, everything else God had done was leading to this. This was the perfect time 
It was the perfect place, and it was the perfect way for God to do what he had long set out to do before even time began. See, God's sovereignty means that there is a time and a purpose for everything in and under heaven. We learn that from Ecclesiastes. Things may not happen how we want them to or when we want them to, but they will happen according to God's good pleasure and design when time is fulfilled. The second part of this verse is this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God isn't just now. It is here. Right in front of you, as close as your own hands. See, the kingdom of God refers to the reign and the rule of God. A foretaste of heaven, if you will. But the kingdom of God, kingdom that Jesus preached looked very different than people had expected. Jesus wasn't going to lead a political coup as the Israelites had hoped. Rather, the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in is rooted in love, not condemnation. It is a kingdom of grace, not law. It is a kingdom of peace, not violence, of humility, not pride. And it is for every man, woman, and child, Jew and Gentile, from the greatest to the least. So last week, we had prayed together the Lord's Prayer. And Jonathan focused specifically on the phrase, lead us not into temptation. Familiar words, certainly, for many of us. And wasn't it a helpful thing to take a deeper look at what Jesus meant when he said we should pray, lead us not into temptation? In the same way, and in that same prayer, we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we speak those words, we are asking God to make things on earth like they already are in heaven, where he is king, where everything is as it should be, free from sin, rebellion, false masters, and idols that enslave us and where loyalty and obedience comes through the suffering love of our king, not coercive power. This is a very different kingdom. And what Jesus is saying in verse 15 is, God's liberating rule has come to earth in me. It is here because I am here. I am the king of God's kingdom and will reclaim what was lost in the fall and I will finish what I have begun. And like many of the promises and gifts of God, you and I live in the already and the not yet. God's kingdom has indeed come, but not yet in all its fullness. A cursory glance at our world is all it takes to see that things are not as they should be. But one day, those who resist God's reign and rule will be fully and completely defeated. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth 
where God's kingdom goes unopposed. And he remakes and rules over all things. And to that end, Jesus tells us to pray, thy kingdom come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus finishes this verse with, repent and believe in the gospel. So that would have sounded, that phrase in particular would have sounded very familiar to Jesus' hearers because it was the same message, as you remember, that John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness to his hearers, a message of repentance, a message of belief. One of the most exciting things about spending time in the Gospels as we are is that we get to revisit and reacquaint ourselves with words and ideas that we have become somewhat accustomed to. And we've just heard three of those words. Repent, believe, gospel. Very familiar words, right? This morning, I'd actually like to take a little bit of time to look at each of those words to make sure that we're all on the same page when we hear them and as we say them. First, the word repent. What does it mean to repent? That is a church word if there ever were one. Let's first talk about what it is not. Repentance is not a feeling. It is not a feeling of sorrow or guilt. Those feelings certainly can inspire repentance, but the feelings alone are not what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, repent is an action word. Literally, it means to turn or to change direction, to make a U-turn, if you will. We've all done those legally or illegally. I once heard repentance described this way. To repent is to leave where you currently are and go somewhere else. For instance, when I got married, I repented of being single. A person can't be both single and married, just like I can't be in Milwaukee and Chicago at the same time. By coming to one, I left the other. When I got married, no one needed to tell me to stop being single because by getting married, I inherently left singleness behind. To take this analogy further, after getting married, if I did not move in with my wife, or I didn't come home at night, or I started dating other people. I can't tell you how bad that would go for me, but it would be fair to say in that that I had not truly repented of being single. And conversely, with every decision that I make to live as a married man that I am, I repent of my singleness. Because repentance is not a one-time decision. And so it is in the life of a believer, the repentance that Jesus calls us to. Jesus Christ calls us to continually leave behind the areas of our life marked by rebellion and by sin and self-reliance and turn to him. Charles Spurgeon defined repentance this way. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution 
to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Do you know how I know, how I've been encouraged that I have repented the way that Jesus talks about in this verse? Because before Christ, when I would sin, I would excuse it. I would justify it. I would think very little of it. And I would run from God. Having now come to Christ, as I grow and as I mature, as God works on me, I still sin, but I really hate that I do. So I agree with God that I have blown it. And I praise him and I thank him for having forgiven me. And I ask him to change the things about me that do not reflect my new identity in him. And that's the big difference. It isn't that you stop sinning, but what is your response to it? Who do you run to in it? How do you feel about it after you have? So let me ask you this morning, real practically, do you hate the sin that you once loved? And do you love the one that you once hated? The second word that Jesus uses in verse 15 is believe. Again, let's start with what belief is not. To believe is not to intellectually assent. It is not agreeing with or knowing a fact or idea. Believing in God is not like believing that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. Rather, the Greek word used here for believe speaks of trust and it speaks of dependence. And like repent, believe is an action word. You can say, we can say, I believe that chair will hold me up if I sit on it. But if you don't ever sit down, have you ever truly believed? You have to actually take a seat and depend on the chair to do what you believe that you said it will do. And so it is in the life of a believer. The word believe is a lot like the word faith. And not just in that there are words painted on boards at Hobby Lobby. They're similar in that they are only as strong as the object upon whom they are placed. A person can believe or have faith that they'll fly when they jump out of an airplane. But upon leaving the safety of that plane, they'll soon discover (laughs) that their belief and their faith were wrongly placed. We cannot deify and idolize faith and belief apart from the object of our faith and our belief. Everybody believes something. Everybody has faith in something. But if it's not Christ himself or the things that emanate from him, who cares? So it is no great thing, my friend, to believe that God exists. There is evidence to that end all around us. Jesus' brother James tells us in his letter that even demons believe in God and shudder 
Satan and his demons know well who God is and that he exists, and they cower when they are confronted. They know who God is. They know that he exists. But it takes a mighty work of God, my friends, a work of God and a work of his spirit to enter into a right relationship with him, to trust in him and depend upon him for life and godliness. And that is what it means to believe. The last word I'd like to look at is gospel. And like the other two words we already looked at, the word gospel has had volumes written about it, but in the context of this message and for time's sake, I'm going to try to whittle it down to one minute. (laughs) The gospel is quite simply the good news of God. The good news that to we who have sinned, God has given his only son and true king, Jesus Christ, so that he could give his life for us, so that he could give his life to us, so that he could live his life through us and set everything right again. The free gift of God received by grace and through faith for all who would follow him. That is the gospel. Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus, walking through the townships of Galilee, encountered and called his first four disciples, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And each of them were common fishermen, but not for long. Not for long. Jesus calling people, to himself was actually an unusual thing at this time. Do you know that Jesus was called rabbi as he would walk? And in the Jewish culture, students chose teachers or rabbis, not the other way around. And yet, Jesus picked his followers personally. To follow someone, my friends, implies leadership and authority. It assumes the posture of learning, imitation, and obedience for those that follow. And that is what Christ was calling them to. And it is what he is calling us to. So what can we gather from Jesus' encounter with these four men? First, the call to repent, believe the gospel, and follow Jesus is for all men. Even the most lowly or common or marginalized among us. If you are sitting here thinking, not me, yes, you. Yes, you. See, being a fisherman was about as common a job as one could have at that time. Jesus didn't go to the temple. He didn't go to the synagogues to gather his disciples because he wasn't interested. He is not interested in the wealth, status, or education of man. He is interested in the heart of man. He is not interested in what we can do for him. He is interested in what he can do through us. The second thing that we learn is that it is Jesus who seeks us out, not we who seek him. Listen to verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. He saw them. And then in verse 19, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John, his brother. In verse 20, and immediately he called them. Do you realize that even the degree to which we look for God, it is he all along who draws us to himself and seeks after us? And that the ache in our hearts for him was put there by him. You see, he who hides must be searched for. He who is lost needs to be found. The one in need of rescue must be saved. He who is dead needs to be raised. And the one who responds has not initiated. We have hidden. We, are, we have been lost. We are in need of rescue. We were dead. And we have responded to what God has initiated. Listen to Genesis 3, verses 8 through 9. And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Jesus teaching a parable in Luke 15 said, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And in Luke 19, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And finally, Jesus speaking to his disciples in John 15 said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Friends, we can also learn a lot from the response of Simon, Andrew, James, and John to the call of Christ. See, according to verse 18, Simon and Andrew followed immediately. The message, a Bible translation, translates verse 18 this way. It's great. They didn't ask questions. They dropped their nets and followed. Isn't that great? They didn't ask questions. They just dropped their nets and they followed. And according to verse 20, like Simon and Andrew, John and James left immediately. They left their father and all they had known, nets and fishing boats included, to follow Jesus. Each of them heard God's call and obeyed. And that is a response worthy of imitation. Is God calling you today? But not all who were called followed Jesus. We know that if we look through the Gospels. The scriptures are filled with people who encountered Jesus and walked away from him. People who followed for a short while but left when things got difficult. And it is no different today. So here's a question for you to consider, for us to consider. What net are you holding on to that's keeping you from following Jesus and obeying his call? What net are you holding on to that's preventing you from following Jesus and following his call? Maybe it's the nets of self-sufficiency or control or the net of pride 
or like Simon, Andrew, James, and John, maybe you need to drop the nets of family or career. Make no mistake, my friends, the call of Jesus is a costly one. He challenges our sinful desire to be our own God, and he demands we love him above all else. You see, if Jesus is God, then no one and nothing else is, including ourselves. And to find our life in him, we need to lose the life that we are trying to make for ourselves and follow him. Follow me, and I will make you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the one who calls us, but there's more. After Jesus calls us, Jesus makes us, and he sends us to be fishers of men. Even if we've never held a fishing pole, He sends us to proclaim the gospel in word and deed to a lost and dying world, to brothers and sisters who have lost their way and need encouragement. And here's the best part. He promises to be with us and in us always, even until the end of the age. You're not going alone. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means What we've been talking about today is what it means to be a Christian. It means that we repent. We turn from self-righteousness to a righteousness found in Christ. From self-exaltation to God-glorification. And we turn from our citizenship of the kingdom of this world and find our true citizenship in the kingdom of God. Being a Christian means we believe that the kingdom of God is here and it's now among us and within us. And it means we trust him to save us, to rescue us, to resurrect us, and to make us new. Being a Christian means that we follow. We let God be God and go wherever he leads. We say what he tells us to say and we do what he tells us to do. And finally, it means we let Jesus make us. We don't make ourselves. We don't make ourselves any more than a branch makes fruit. See, by his spirit, God begins the lifelong work of transforming and sanctifying those who follow his son, making us into who he says we already are. And gradually, throughout our lives, shaping us into the image of Christ. Do you know that that's the significance of the word become in that verse? Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. So if you've never repented, or if you're not sure that you ever believed in Jesus, the way that we talked about it, let it be today. Have urgency Turn your face and your heart toward him and trust him. And if you have repented and you do believe, but you've been wandering, going your own way, it is time to follow again. Stop running from him 
and let him continue to make you. Hear the urgency of his call this morning, my friends, and believe. Because by the blood of Jesus, there is room at the throne of grace. There is room in the kingdom of God. And all are welcome. Let's pray. Father God, where else can we go but to you? You alone have the words of eternal life. While we were your enemies, you loved us and you came for us that we might be righteous in you and come to life in you. You have called us and we thank you for your spirit which helps us hear your call and respond by faith to it. We thank you that it is never too late to repent, to turn, that we cannot go so far or be so lost that you will not find us. Help us to trust in you, depend on you, and believe in you in and for all things. Keep us by your side and help us to follow hard after you. And for those holding on to the nets of this world, would you open their eyes, their hearts, and their minds to the unmatched beauty of Jesus and help them repent, believe in his gospel, drop their nets, and follow. Lord, you call us to follow you so that you can make us. In your children, you have begun a holy work that you are faithful to complete to make us citizens, priests, ambassadors, and ministers of and in your kingdom. Let us live in the good and the truth of our new identities and declare the good news of God to this world until you would make it new. Amen.